0: Sometimes I just have to marvel on how great it is that I get to talk about books all the time and with some really accomplished authors. That's it. That's the intro. My guest today is one of the National Book Foundation's 5 Under 35 honorees, and I'm just really friggin' psyched about it. So enjoy this episode with Joseph Hahn, author of Nuclear Family, as we talk about his book and we talk about the memoir, The Magical Language of Others by E.J. Coe. Welcome to your favorite book. All right, so Joseph, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, I know you just said you came off of some travel. I hope you're finding a little bit of rest (laughs) in this time.
1: Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here and in conversation with you.
0: I'm really excited for this as well. I think this is going to be just a great discussion overall, both your book and the book you chose for this episode. I think there's just so much to say. Um, But before we get into everything today, um, can you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and about this book you have coming out?
1: Sure! Uh, My name is Joseph Han. I was born in South Korea and raised on the island of Oahu, Hawaii, where my family immigrated when I was really young. Um, I've lived in Hawaii for most of my life and my debut novel, Nuclear Family, is coming out on June 7th, um, a few days from this interview actually. And yeah, my book is a way in which I try to honor the places where my family comes from, the lands on which I, w- I was raised and is about the legacies of war and empire as it impacts the everyday um, in both Korea and Hawaii.
0: That's so beautifully phrased. It's like, I—I I, obviously it's your book and you know how to talk about it better than anyone, <laughs> but that's just a wonderful way to wrap all of that up because it is a complex story and it was really something special to me. Um, so, there, there's parts of it that I just keep turning over and over in my head. You just pack a lot into a relatively short book. And I think just to get started with this book, the first thing that comes to mind with me is the title of your book, Nuclear Family. I think this is an absolutely brilliant title. I, and <laughs> I know, like, though we'll talk about it a bit, but I just feel like the way your book takes form, you know, you take the perspective of multiple family members within the Cho family, but also um, broader extended family, people in the general uh, Hawaii community. And you're really sort of deconstructing that Western concept of a nuclear family. And then you tie in the post-World War II sort of nuclear threat as well into that. It's just such a beautiful way to encapsulate the kind of story you're telling. And I guess my question for you is, Um, When did you arrive at the title? When in the writing process did that title come to you?
1: Thank you. Wow, thank you for such a really nice um, response to the book. Um, Yeah, almost immediately um, I came up with the title knowing that I wanted to write about a Korean family in Hawaii and how when writing about Hawaii, you can't tell... The story of just one family. You really need to talk about the network of families and communities that exist that come from all over the world. Um, and also, it's a way in which, uh, like you mentioned, acknowledge the various genealogies and lineages we have and don't have in particular um, for the Korean diaspora in Hawaii not having a direct lineage to the land um, to the Hawaiian land and um, so much of the novel is about honoring our ancestors both living and dead um, mm-hmm. but also thinking about the places um, where we live um, as ancestors and how we we too must respect and honor where we live and where we reside and yeah I saw nuclear family as a a framework that i had to collapse and write past as the characters themselves attempt to figure out who they call or claim as family and it's a term of belonging that i think needs to become ever more capacious Mm -hmm. as we include more folks in our communities who we otherwise might ostracize or neglect or just consider family in the loosest sense, um, without ha- bearing the responsibility that we need to have to take care of one another.
0: Oh, gosh, again, I was like, well, how do I follow that? But <laughs> you're, you're you're exactly right. The idea of making the idea of the nuclear family more capacious, and I love that word that you're using here. It, it It's really so true, because you think about how we can consider a nuclear family. It's very much a Western rooted in whiteness kind of term. You know, who counts as your family, who is inherently on the outside and how that just doesn't apply to anybody who has a more complex lineage. You know, whether you are living in a land that's not originally your own, who's involved in your family. If you're part of sort of a broader multi-generational kind of household, there's just so many ways to conceive a family. And I thought your book just did a beautiful job of just talking about the past and present of family, and uh, specifically, I think you know your book is one of the most literal forms of generational trauma, like a representation of general generational trauma that I've seen. I mean, literally, and this isn't really a spoiler, but it's the spirit of a deceased ancestor is possessing the living body of a later descendant. It's a major sort of uh, feature of your book, and that trauma is just embedded in him as a result. It's inextricable in many ways. And I know part of the answer to this question I'm about to ask is just, you know, being a good writer and good writing. But <laughs> I'm wondering about how you approached writing trauma from these numerous perspectives rather than simply as a young living descendant.
1: Yeah. Um, as far as the story of Jacob's possession by his grandfather. It's very much uh, a narrative of his own coming into understanding of his place in Korean history and how though the Korean War did not occur in his lifetime, literally, um, it is still ongoing and present um, in the everyday. And is technically, of course, still ongoing because of the lack of a peace treaty and all of that manifests mm-hmm. into um, why he is considered South Korean um, of birth. Um, I think anytime we talk about Korea in the Western imagination, we are always talking about South Korea first and foremost. Mm. And that's always as having North Korea as a sort of antithesis. So he Jacob comes to embody these histories of division and confronts the various barriers that he's encountered throughout his life, whether that's barriers between understanding um, where his family comes from originally in the North um, barriers with those who he does not know um, with language. And so the possession is, was my way of having him embody all of these different, um mm-hmm. histories, and to ultimately attempt to resolve them and to make peace um, of his life and of the lives of his ancestors, namely his grandfather, Tewu.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I think that that makes a lot of sense. you know, you bring in that otherworldly idea of possession into this story and, it it makes everything feel a lot more tangible. And it just really brings to mind just what these characters are all struggling with and have struggled with and how, you know, death doesn't eliminate any of these traumas from existence. And you bring that up very literally, but it's clear that these things continue to haunt our characters, even if they aren't literally haunted, so to speak. And um, shifting gears a little bit, because I know, you know, for everyone listening here, these first few minutes of this show, This book takes on a lot of really heavy topics, but there's something that shouldn't go understated with your story. And that's how funny this book is (laughs) in portions. Like there's so much just dry wit and humor. And to me, a lot of that revolves around Guy Fieri in this book. Uh Um, The presence of, I want to talk to you about Guy Fieri, because when when you bring Guy Fieri in, I was just immediately taken in by the idea that this is a restaurant that had been featured on Triple D and, you know, is kind of dealing with that. And you think of Guy Fieri and all of those Food Network shows, he's kind of an innocuous part of television. I was listening to a different podcast recently, and someone referred to Guy as just a wholesome part of TV. He's trying to affirm everybody's dreams. He's very rarely outwardly critical. But you wrap up Guy Fieri in another idea that you bring up, and that's, you know, the possession of Hawaii and who is foreign and who counts as local and who counts as tourist and, you know, all of that sort of wraps in and it takes on a darker tone, but I want to know what inspired you to bring Guy Fieri into this and sort of what you were taking away from all of that.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm a huge fan of Guy um, (laughs) and I've watched almost every episode of Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives. (laughs) Um, a lot with my sister, actually. So,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, yeah, that inspired why I wanted to write him into the book. Um, he kind of has a ghostly presence in the lives of the the Cho family in Hawaii and their restaurant, as a sort of specter in its own in his own right, haunting Grace, um, haunting the legacy and what they need to live up to, and what ultimately becomes lost. After mm-hmm. they must face the backlash um, of Jacob's attempted crossing into North Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it just made total sense that Guy and his visit would be something that launched the Cho family's restaurant into the popular imagination of local, both local and tourist tourist customers. Mm-hmm. who come to Hawaii to try something they've never had before, um, whether that's meatjun, um, which is a very specific dish to Hawaii, um, kind of like a hybridized um, food um, mm-hmm. that that, yeah, speaks to the Korean Hawaii diaspora. Um, and yeah, it was also my way of roping in the reader. And the reader's interest into uh, the story of the restaurant and the family, in the same way that he is used, his stamp of approval is used to bring in customers um, to actual places. So, yeah, I, I guess I wanted to honor Guy as a kind of culinary celebrity ancestor that he is to many immigrant family restaurants in a way and um, play with the way in which he's kind of worshiped um, as a, a deity of sorts Um, (laughs) and yeah, how um, the family needs to and hopes to move beyond uh, the reputation that was bestowed upon them and to create one that, that is entirely their own. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, Yeah. That's a, Again, a gr- a gr- I'm glad to hear that, you know, your perspective on Guy Fieri is a figure you really enjoy. And, you know, this is <laughs> someone who you kind of grew up watching in a way or like continue to watch his episodes. And I remember watching Guy Fieri on TV and thinking he only went to like, you know, quote unquote, white people restaurants. And then I saw yeah. Indian Place show up on the show. I've seen a few Chinese and Korean places show up on the show. And I was like, oh, this is this is actually great. You know, he is broadening perspectives in general and broadening what it means to have a a diner so to speak you know there's so many different forms of that and I I just think it's just a great premise for this restaurant it roots it very much in a familiar time and place and I don't know I think it immediately just endeared me to these characters and just made this restaurant (laughs) feel very real to me um so I just I really loved that and I guess the last thing I was curious about with your book and that's coming back to sort of what we were talking before and that's the The concept of borders here i mean the quite literal dmz that you've brought up the the wall uh that definitely comes to life here you think about the borders between the living and the dead i i've read a lot of books recently about borders um most recently i've read some books about partition with india and pakistan and Hmm. similar borders that exist there and what the violence that occurs as a result of these borders and I guess I just wanted to know your, your concept, the, the, the ghostly concept you bring related to the border without giving too much away. Was there any sort of real life mythos that inspired a lot of that? Was that mostly coming from your imagination? Was it a combination of the two?
1: Um, yeah, um, I owe a lot of this book and my understanding of the DMC to uh, Nora Okja Keller's Comfort Woman, which is mm-hmm. the epigraph of the novel where she talks about um, a character having a dream of countless families and spirits wandering from Mm. the head and toe of the peninsula, not knowing that when they reach the center, they have to turn around and that they will be lost. Um, So that as one of the first Korean American texts that I've read, as I began to learn more about my history, um, a history that has been alluded to me because of my education in English, Oh, yeah. And because of the way I've been taught to uh, understand and accept um, the Kore- that Korea's division is a fact um, mm-hmm. and not one that has been imposed. Um, and that epigraph really led me to think about how everything we come to know as the DMZ goes far beyond our imagination and is incredibly powerful as it continues to exist in our global imaginary that a lot of us grow up, grow up and continue to think that um, the DMC will always be there.
0: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and counter to that kind of narrative is the countless number of families who remember a time when Korea was not divided, when they could freely roam about the peninsula mm-hmm. and you, if you learn more about the history of the Korean War, the reason why many families got separated was that they didn't know that Korea was going to be divided. They thought mm-hmm. they would go down to the south for a couple of days and come back realizing mm-hmm. that, that they could not um, after the um, 38th parallel was established. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I wanted to write the DMZ in such a way that the reader could understand how um, its ramifications not only extend across multiple realities and the one that we assume to be fixed and true um, uh, with the current uh, separation of North and South Korea, Um, but that the separation endures um, across generations and um, across this life and into the next, because currently, right now, families who were directly impacted by the Korean War and are separated from their loved ones, they often pass away carrying that wish to still return to the North to still see a very particular face of a long lost loved one. And this book is so much about how we continue to carry that wish and that longing. Um, you mentioned um, intergenerational trauma as being um, a fabric to this mm-hmm. book that ties the characters across their chapters. Um, but it's also about how we continue to carry our unresolved hope and love for the people that we've lost and i've i feel that like that's very beautifully uh, encapsulated in the cover of the book which Mm -hmm. i'm really happy about as it speaks to the way we carry these messages and affix them to these borders as a way of articulating our hope that we can push through and past these divisions one day and to see peace unfold, not only in our lifetimes, but for the lives that have preceded us.
0: It's just so hard to have hope sometimes. And I speak very broadly about the world at large. And so I love that you speak to to hope that we're carrying across generations because that can be just as powerful in different ways as trauma. That can be trauma of its own, um, but it can also just be the glue that ties us all together. And I think that's just so, so beautifully phrased. I think your book just does so many different interesting things. Like the characters felt so real to me, um, the, the family, Grace and Jacob and their parents, as well as the broader network. I just love how they all interacted. I love how the story just reached its crescendo. I don't know, it was just a beautifully told story. <laughs> I certainly hope all of you pick up this book. I certainly <laughs> enjoyed it.
1: Thank you, thank you so much.
0: Of course. And sort of moving on to the book you chose for the remainder of this episode, which draws upon a lot of similar themes here. So this is The Magical Language of Others by E.J. Um So this book's a memoir. So there aren't too many spoilers in the conventional sense, but we'll try not to spoil too many details. Um, but for everybody to essentially summarize this book, um, this is a memoir unpacking the author's late adolescence and early adulthood, after her mother and father leave for work in Korea and leave her and her brother behind. The book then dips into the past to unpack the traumas of EJ Ko's mother and grandmothers, all while holding the book together via her mother's many letters and the presence of translation. So obviously that doesn't touch on everything going on here, but that's broadly speaking what goes on in this book. And so Joseph, I'm interested in knowing, you know, when did you pick up this book and what were your overall impressions?
1: Yeah, um E.J. Ko is a really um wonderful writer and I think one of the most brilliant Korean American writers working today.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And super excited about her forthcoming novel from Tin House, I think coming out next year.
0: Oh, very exciting. 2023.
1: And yeah, I first encountered EJ's work through her poetry, um, her book, A Lesser Love. Um and Just quite generally, Korean-American poetry, in particular, the work of Korean-American women poets, really helped me to create a a language for understanding how to talk about, think about, um, carry stories of war and division um, of diaspora. And I think all of that is beautifully carried as well in this memoir in um, its understanding of the separations that resonate across generations and um, how we reunite with our loved ones in memory and in our lifetimes. And um, yeah, actually, EJ and I are friends, and I was very lucky um, to be confided in with an earlier version of the manuscript, which I read and absolutely loved. And Reading the book in its print final form, too, I was just so moved by, by what she accomplished um, as an ode to her relationship with not only her mother, but as you mentioned, a uh, matrilineal history um, to all of the Korean women in her lives, and um, yeah, it's I'm I picked this book because I'm so grateful. Um, that it exists. And mm-hmm. a common refrain that you often hear is, um, you know, when you feel like the author has written this book for you. Yeah. Um, and I had to tell EJ when I first read her memoir that, that same thing, um, because I uh, related to that story of living apart from one's immediate family Mm -hmm. Um, Because when I immigrated to Hawaii, I moved with my grandparents Mm
0: -hmm. and
1: was raised by them until I was about um, 10. And then that's when my family, uh, my mother and father and sister moved to Hawaii to join me. And those years apart were very formative um, in um, not so great ways for me um, because Mm -hmm. i grew up always with this persistent longing for a complete nuclear family um, Mm -hmm. as it was always posited to me through my education um, and i always felt like something was missing in my life uh yeah i i love this book so much and yeah i just wanted to honor a writer who i look up to and admire and whose poetics and understanding of language and translation continue to inform
0: Mm. uh,
1: my, my own approach to my writing Um, though. It's a memoir. Mm -hmm. I do believe that EJ's book is also a craft book as well, because Mm -hmm. so much of it is about, um, I, I could um, quote lines back to you, but yeah, I don't want to, um, like you said, spoil anything um, for readers who haven't picked it up yet, but yeah,
0: and it's honestly, glorious. It's, it's glorious. It's, it's a gorgeously written book. I mean, I didn't know EJ Coe's other work before reading this, but as soon as I found out that she is a poet, a working poet, I was like, this makes a lot of sense. The, the language leaps off the page. Um, The way this memoir is structured, structured, it's almost this collection of loosely tied essays, and they're tied together by the letters that her mother has written her during their years apart. And these concepts sort of run into each other, but in many cases, they do stand alone, especially as we explore the different characters. It's It's a gorgeous book, and right off the bat, and I referenced this when I was recording my last episode, and I was talking about what I was reading now, and I was in the middle of this one. I think you might win Joseph for picking the saddest book I've ever had to read for this show. (laughs) (laughs) At least the first half, because this is not a book for the faint of heart. It is tremendously tragic. And I think part of that has to do with, I actually listened to this on audio. Um, Hmm. EJ co narrates the book herself and it is beautifully, her voice is soft-spoken and lovely very very similar to yours in fact it's this lovely understated kind of voice and it's pr- it's a conduit for a story like this but you feel all of that tragedy along with her um you feel the trauma running deep and i mean to give everyone a mild spoiler but when they say there are rivers of blood after the massacre of a town like you feel yeah. it you you feel that you think you are there and and juxtaposing that past trauma with E.J. Co's own life, the loneliness and isolation that she feels, that's its own tragedy, and it's no less significant. Um, and at times, it was hard for me, you know, dealing with that amount of tragedy and listening to it.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: but, but then at the end, but towards the second half, you get to, as she discovers poetry, you get to um, sort of her reckoning with everything. And you feel this sense of triumph, but you wouldn't feel it unless you had been through what she has told us already.
1: Yeah, um, despite there being so much um, tragedy um, that we must reckon with as readers, um, I think on the flip side, there's also so much love. um, And I think um, EJ herself talks about how in writing about intergenerational trauma, she's also writing toward love and we also see that trajectory in her own transformation um, as a poet um, as a way to live um, magnanimously um, live uh, in not in resentment or frustration but in forgiveness toward Mm -hmm. herself and for toward um, um, the separations that she's endured Um, the time apart from her mother. Um, And yeah, this memoir is such a a gift um, because uh, it's so intimate to be seeing the letters scanned and uh, reprinted in the book Mm
0: -hmm. and also
1: translated um, to put them side by side. We see also, and we are meant to feel the gap between the translation and the letter that she's received. And they serve as these really wonderful interstitial moments between these chapters. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's such a gift for her to share um, what she's received um, mm-hmm. from, her mo- her, from her mother and um, for us to see the process in which she's had to work through understanding her place in this larger history um, of migration and separation and uh, maneuvering across languages and identities. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, it's, it's a marvelous book. It
0: really is. It really is. And I'm, I'm so glad you brought up the letters because that's certainly something I wanted to highlight here. So there are, I, I believe uh, the book has about 39 letters, if I'm remembering correctly, yeah. and we see several of these in the book. And the the letters to me, if I could come up with a single word to describe how they made me feel, especially listening to them, I didn't have the benefit of seeing them side by side on the page, listening to them, but I did get to hear them. I guess the one word that came to mind was claustrophobia. And the reason mm-hmm. that word comes to mind is so hearing the, and the the book starts with this beautiful note on translation where E.J. Ko notes that her mother refers to herself as mommy. And there's, and so you see the presence of mommy coming up and mommy enjoyed doing this. And I hope Yoon Ji is doing well. And there are these constant unmet expectations and the pressures to be okay and be happy. And I know you're not here, but I need you to do well. And there are these, these back and forths that are implied, even though the letters are one-sided. It's sort of, you feel just the the weight of that pressure Mm -hmm. on you, just listening to the letters. And I'm just thinking, I haven't lived this life, but I feel the pressure just hearing these letters. I felt the weight of them on my shoulders. And claustrophobia, I think inherently sounds like a negative term, but I just didn't know that that could be expressed so well in writing, and so just having that feeling evoked in me was just unlike yeah. I'd ever experienced before.
1: Yeah, um, they they become a transmission of her mother's will and hopes and her longing uh, for EJ to to thrive and to live um, and to be well without without her. And yeah, I love what you're saying about claustrophobia because um, we also can feel and embrace um, Mm -hmm. through these letters um, and the ways in which she's, we see and we can feel um, her mother embracing EJ through language um, and as as Ichi, um the narrator and character in the book, becomes a poet, I think we also see the ways in which she's inspired by and also shaped by these letters, and which mm. are her mother's poems and how her mother is a poet and yeah. her language, how her life has always been touched by poetry through her mother's words and um, her mother's love um, as it endured across a gulf of absence mm-hmm. and silence. and mm-hmm. the ways in which they both reach across this gulf and fill it with love and language and life. and a return to one another, I think, is, yeah, I th- one of it was one of the most moving and heartrending experiences of reading that I've ever had. Yeah, uh, for a Korean American text, I
0: I just I just feel like this this book you know describing it doesn't do it justice. I I truly <laughs> feel this is one of the most unique, thought provoking, interesting memoirs that I've ever read. And you know it's it's not an easy read or an easy listen, but it's certainly a, a gratifying one just from a pure craft perspective as well. As you mentioned, this is partially a craft book. I mean, if anything, just the process of putting together these these stories, even when they weren't experienced firsthand, but having them feel so visceral and real and then combining that with the real and the experience and the translation efforts as well. I mean, it's unlike anything I've read before. I highly recommend it. Yeah. And for me, it was hard to come up with a comparable book to recommend. Um, but the one that came to mind for me is actually one I read recently and that is um latest essay collection, which is Translating mm-hmm. Myself and Others, which just came out just a few weeks ago, actually. And I had the pleasure wow. of reading um, this collection is tremendous. It basically takes on the idea of translation as an art, as a science, you know, at Accurately describing not our own work or the work of others, depending on what we are translating, you know, f- finding ourselves as artists, but also honoring the intent of the other per- of the other party. It's just really highlighting and celebrating the unique dance that is translation, and it's just as intimate, even though it is not as you know heartfelt as say a memoir. It is intimately personal and beautifully put together, and sort of these loosely connected essays the way we saw it with the magical language of others. And so I think if someone's looking for more of a broader translation look as a whole, but along similar lines, that's certainly a book that I would recommend. Mm.
1: Yeah, that sounds awesome.
0: Yeah, definitely recommend that. And then Joseph, I'm wondering, I know obviously this book is tremendously meaningful to you, but if you had to suggest another book for someone looking for something similar, is there something you could bring up?
1: Yeah, um, a number of books, actually, that come to (laughs) mind as as far as um, the amazing work of Korean-American nonfiction Mm -hmm. that's been coming out lately. Um, For one, Michelle Zauner's Crying in H Mart,
0: Mm -hmm. which
1: I think is also a craft book in a way, in, in the way she writes about cooking, but also her coming into being an artist Mm-hmm. Um, and how that was also shaped by, inspired by, her own mother's uh, foray into art and art-making. Um, and mm-hmm. another book that I'd suggest is Tastes Like War uh, by Grace mm-hmm. M. Cho. Um, also about um, cooking as a way of creating memory and um, art-making as a way of memorializing and remembering our loved ones and our histories, um, which I think uh, E.J.'s book does so incredibly well and beautifully in um, giving us insight into the lives of her forebearers. um, In particular, I think you mentioned um, uh, her paternal grandmother and her experiences Mm -hmm. growing up on Jeju Island and Honestly, I think that chapter is one of the most, a singular contribution to Korean American literature at large for Mm -hmm. what it does in giving us insight into a moment which is often forgotten or erased from history um, Mm -hmm. uh, as far as the Jeju Massacre, which preceded the events of the Korean War and One thing that I really wanted to mention is historically, the way in which the Korean War is remembered and memorialized as far as its start in 1950 is um, in the American imagination, we always are taught to learn that North Korea invaded the South and that's Mm -hmm. what started the war. Um, But what EJ's book shows us is that War was already present prior to the official quote-unquote start of the Korean War. And actually, a lot of historians and scholars point to the Jeju Massacre as the beginning of the Korean War, when the United States and South Korean-backed military turned against its own citizens for fear of a communist uprising Mm -hmm. or rebellion. And the Korean War is so much about Koreans being at war with one another, which is still ongoing today. Um, and we see that in, rendered in a very heartbreaking and tragic way as we get a translation of the stories that EJ's maternal, um, excuse me, paternal grandmother shares regarding her accounts of what happened to her father um, or E.J.'s great-grandfather wow. and um, and there's this lovely um, afterword um, in the memoir where she talks about this but I, I thought I should mention um, why her writing that moment and writing her paternal grandmother's story is so significant. Yeah, um, and what it accomplishes.
0: Absolutely, it was a part of history I certainly was unaware of. And you're right; you know, you always have to question what angle to history you're always given. And it was one of the most heartbreaking chapters of the book. But ultimate, and sometimes I was wondering how it fit in to the rest mm-hmm. of the story. But you do see it all come together. Absolutely this this is yeah. definitely yeah. a book that is all brought together, if only just to sort of demystify the nuances of this experience and what it means to come from a history of that nature. And definitely everyone listening, pick up both of these books. I mean, we've only scratched the surface of what nuclear family and the magical language of others have to offer. And uh, Joseph, before we close out, can you tell us about where we can find you and where we'll be able to find your book?
1: Sure, Um, you can find me mostly online on Twitter, um, at Han Joseph. Um, The same is for Instagram, at Han Joseph. Mm -hmm. Um, You can also find out more about what's going on with regard to future events, Um, recent Mm -hmm. work that's appeared online um, at my website, joseph-han.com. And yeah, you can find Nuclear Family starting June 7th, anywhere books are sold.
0: Absolutely. And definitely do pick this one up. I was just, I I just love what you did with, with form, with narration. I'm a, a sucker for a multi-perspective, <laughs> multi-generational story. Same. I mean, I, <laughs> this book just, it's just what I love and it's just what I come to literature for. And just to feel immersed in a place and in a time and in a family. And you get all of that and more with Nuclear Family. And Joseph, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thank you. This was amazing. Thank you. thank
0: you. all for listening. As a reminder, we have episodes every Thursday. So usually our interview episodes. And then at the end of the month, we'll have our short story book club. So at the end of June, we're going to be reading the classic, The Lottery by Shirley Jackson. If you haven't read it, What are you waiting for? Even if you have, you may want to give it a brief refresher, so stay tuned for that. Um, You can follow the podcast on Instagram and uh, Twitter. Gosh, I couldn't remember the other social media platform, at YFB Podcast. Uh, Reviews are always appreciated, so no matter what platform you listen on, definitely want to hear what you have to say. And that's it. Happy reading. Hope to see you next time. (music)